Hello and welcome back to the Great Maine Podcast. Happy New Year and we hope you all had a wonderful Christmas season. For our last episode of 2021, we released the first session from our online masterclass with Father Dwight Longnecker. This class was all about winning the spiritual battle. Many of you were able to join us for four awesome evenings of discussion, and now we're sharing the recordings here on the podcast over the next few weeks. Today's episode talks about the hero who comes to do battle with our world's conniving antagonist. Father Dwight talks about mimetic desire and the manifestations of the seven deadly sins in the world, how God's secret plan involves a rescue that starts from the inside out, and the power of taking on the responsibility for the state of the world. Let's get started. What I'd like to do this evening is to, first of all, review a little bit of the session from Monday evening as a kind of recap and, and a foundation for what we'll talk about this evening. And first of all, in, in the big picture, what we talked about on <clears throat> Monday evening was the sin of the world. And that was uh, in an attempt to try to answer the question, what does it mean when we say something like Jesus died to take away the, the Lamb, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or Jesus died to take away the sin of the world? The troubling question, and the, and the good question, how does the death of uh, an insurrectionist in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago take away the naughty things I've done? And this question has been looming in my mind for a long time as a question that modern people might very well ask. And usually I've found that Christians will simply trot out the same old phrases that they've always used and say things like, well, you see, he shed his blood so that to take away our sins. And people say, well, what do you mean by that? And, those, and then they'll usually say, well, you see, he died so that we don't have to. And say various things which they've been taught to repeat, which are acceptable if you're a believer, if you're a Christian believer. But if you're not, what does that mean? So in the first session, I've tried to explain what the sin of the world really is and where it comes from and what it means, that the sin of the world is something much deeper and more profound and fundamental than just the naughty things we've done, the shameful things that we've done, the list that we take to confession if we're Catholics and we, we go and confess these things. That's Those are sins. I was talking about sin with a capital S, which is a much bigger and deeper problem for humanity and human history. And so we're going to take us through a little review from session one. First of all, I spoke about why I was using the symbols from ancient mythology, because <clears throat> The symbols and the characters of mythology, whether it's ancient mythology or whether it's the mythology of modern movies, actually connect with us in a very deep and powerful way. We see these images, we imagine these monsters, we imagine these characters, and they resonate in our imagination and therefore in our heart. And I believe in the power of the imagination because it opens up not only our minds, but our hearts as well. We, we register with these things with our emotions, not just with our intellect, and therefore imagery and the imagery and, and the, the plot line and the characters of mythology and stories are very powerful and have been down through history. And so I've used some of these to illustrate my points uh, as we go, and I will do so again tonight as well. And the image that I used to start off was, was the image of the Minotaur, this great, huge, masculine beast with the head of a with the bull with the with the with the big horns and a kind of devil figure from the ancient world and this minotaur occupies the labyrinth underneath the palace of the king the king minos and 
this labyrinth underneath the palace is representative of the intricate corridors and the dark passageways of the mind and the interest in intricate corridors and the dark passageways of the human psyche where this monster um, of evil dwells and it's a good picture therefore of what i mean by the sin of the world because this sin of the world is the underlying system of the way the world works in the new testament St. Paul uses the word, the, the term, the flesh, to represent uh, all of the powers of this world, all of the way that the world works. The worldly way of working is uh, seemingly one of glamour and luxury, like the king's palace, but underneath that is this labyrinth where the minotaur dwells, and that, that labyrinth with the minotaur is the, um, the image that I use for the sin of the world. And this underlying sin of the world is what we're, we were trying to get at in on Monday evening session. So we began to explore, therefore, where power comes from. Power is, comes from the, the, the freedom to choose. And that produces pride. And pride I defined as simply the uh, basic underlying foundational conviction that I am right. And my opinions are right. My feelings are right. My emotions are right. I am right. And Pride, therefore, produces prejudice, because if I'm right, you're wrong if you've chosen differently. And so that prejudice leads to resentment, especially if you have more stuff than I do. I resent what you have. I resent that you're in power. And that resentment turns you into my rival. And what do I do with my rival? I compete against my... Eventually, I'm planning and plotting revenge against my rival. I need to win against the rival and bring him down and that therefore leads to um, revenge and revenge of course ultimately ends in some sort of violence now this is where the philosophy of rene girard comes in because rene girard picked up on this idea of what he called mimetic desire and mimetic desire can be defined as imitative envy and I'd like to spend a little bit more time on my medic desire this evening because it's a very important concept underneath in the, in the labyrinth, if you like. And when we say the labyrinth is a confusing network of corridors and passageways and so forth, this is what it's like when you start to meditate on my medic desire and how my medic desire is there as a motivator and a, an underlying factor within uh, all of human nature and all of human history. And that this leads to rivalry and competition. He observed, for instance, which something that psychologists and anthropologists have observed for a long time, that human beings learn by imitating. We, as babies, we imitate the adults around us. That's how we learn facial expressions. That's how we learn language. That's how we learn behavior. That's how we become socialized, by imitating those around us. And this imitative instinct that we have, and we are far more imitative than any other creatures in, the, in, in God's creation. And we learn everything by imitation. And this imitation leads ultimately to rivalry. So Girard notices, for instance, when children are playing, that they will imitate one another in their play, but also almost automatically Jimmy is not only imitating Johnny's method of playing, but Jimmy wants Johnny's, Johnny's toys and wants to take Johnny's toys. And so rivalry and competition begins from right from the very beginning. When the mimetic desire is frustrated, we therefore end up in a situation of rivalry and competition. And that disappointed competition leads to blaming the other person. When we didn't get what we wanted, when we weren't able to achieve what we desired in this way, we lead to blame. And blame leads to scapegoating and to um, 
as I said, to rivalry and revenge. And the scapegoating, Gerard understands, leads to tribal murder. So <clears throat> the way he, we explained this on Monday was the tribe gets together and tr the tribe is operating according to this imitative desire as well as the individual. And when something goes wrong, they therefore blame a scapegoat, an outsider. They blame the unusual person. They blame the other tribe. They blame almost anybody. But when they learn that pattern of blame, they then have to get rid of the problem. And the way to get rid of the problem is to get rid of the person who's causing the problem. And therefore, this leads to scapegoating and to what Gerard notices in primitive cultures as tribal murder or ritual sacrifice. The scapegoated person or the scapegoated tribe or the scapegoated group of people is taken out and persecuted and isolated and finally killed. And when that uh, problem, as it were, is done away with, the tribe experiences, the individual experiences a great sense of euphoria and happiness. And so next time they have a problem, guess what? They go back and do it again. And so this brings about the world's sacrificial systems where, first of all, in primitive religions, they began to develop a ritual of human sacrifice, and then animals are substituted. And Jesus of Nazareth falls victim to, into this same, what I call a demonic dynamic, this same, di this same cycle of ritual murder, scapegoating, apportioning blame, and killing the one that you blame. But because he's innocent, Gerard points out, for the first time, humanity's eyes are opened to <clears throat> what is going on. So what I'd like to do uh, now, now that our eyes are open to what is going on, because this is one of the most important things that Gerard notices, is that we're actually blind to this cycle that's going on. Most of us are blind to what's going on, so we fall into it automatically. And if that was how, the, if that is the sin of the world, the minotaur in, in the labyrinth underneath all of the facade of our nice, good, happy life, then I would like to spend a few moments talking about how this manifests itself um, in the particular things that we do. <clears throat> and I've linked my medic desire, therefore, with the seven deadly sins. And I would like to go through these with you and just share with you these seven deadly sins as a reminder and show how my medic desire is actually linked in with. So first of all, we'll talk about the sin of lust. Very often with lust, we think that this has merely to do with the seeking of and the, the, desi the desire for sexual pleasure or the desire to take another person. However, lust is has a much more deeper dimension than simply seeking a particular, you know, pleasurable spasm of the body. Lust is actually linked in with this mimetic desire in a very subtle and very powerful and disturbing way. <clears throat> I think it was Plato who first said that, theorized that the creation of man and woman was the result of one being being split into two. And ever thereafter, both halves were looking for reconciliation and coming back together in order to complete themselves. And so underneath lust and sexual desire is actually in mimetic theory, also a desire not just for sexual pleasure, but a desire to actually possess the other person, to actually obtain the other person and become one with the other person. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. When it's fulfilled within marriage, this can be a beautiful, the beautiful result of God's plan. However, when that desire to possess the other person is a selfish desire and is also loaded up with another dimension, which is seeking that sexual partner from, as the result of mimetic imitation, more mimetic desire. So here's what I'm trying to get at. 
It's kind of complicated. How much of our sexual desire and lust is determined by simply the physical need that we have, or how much of it is actually determined by also a need to have the other person possess the other person, and how much of it is also conditioned and determined by our desire to <clears throat> have another person because that's what everybody else has, or that's what the next guy has, or that's what the next woman has. In other words, does a woman want to get married because she really loves that other man? Or is there part of it in which she wants to get married so that she can be like all her friends who got married that summer? Does the man really desire that other woman for who she is to really become one with her and become united with her in a union of love and caring and, and passion? Or does he actually want that girl because she's going to look good on his arm and impress all the other guys? In other words, is she a kind of trophy for him to be imitating the other men? Or is that man a kind of trophy for her to be able to keep up with the other women? You see, mimetic desire actually influences these other things. And when it's mimetic desire, which is driving the human impulse, this is where lust comes from. It's not actually, lust is a distortion of love. Lust is a love which has gone wrong. The next of the seven deadly sins is gluttony. Why do we really um, eat or drink too much or too little for that matter? Is it be simply because we enjoy the taste and the, and the result and the comfort from food and drink? Yeah, that's, that's one dimension of our desire. But when it becomes distorted, it's distorted because it's influenced by mimetic desire, the imitation of others. In other words, are we eating and drinking a lot in order to, be, to keep up with everybody else, starving ourselves in order to get our bodies into a particular shape because that's what we think everybody else wants and we're imitating those other skinny people? Or are we eating an awful lot or focusing too much on food because uh, that's what other, maybe going to really posh restaurants because that's what other people do who we admire, we want to follow on. All these things are good desires which are twisted by mimetic desire. Greed is the desire for money or, or material possessions that other people have. Do we really want those material possessions and that money simply for what they're, what they're worth and the good, the natural good that they offer us? Or are we seeking all those things in order to keep up with the Joneses and um, imitate others who we think are successful or have um, more prestige or more power than we do? If the desire is a natural desire for a natural good, there's nothing wrong with it. But if it's distorted by mimetic desire, that's when it becomes um, one of the seven deadly sins. Sloth is an interesting one on the list. What is sloth? Sloth is sometimes termed as laziness or sluggardliness, but underneath sloth is the desire for comfort. It's the desire to be irresponsible and let somebody else take responsibility and do all the work. In this way, again, mimetic desire distorts the natural desire for relaxation, for comfort, and for ease. There's nothing wrong with relaxing after a good day's work. But what turns into sloth when that's all we want, and it turns into sloth, at, but it's, it's distorted by mimetic desire when we are searching for this as a way to get others to take the responsibility for, uh, in, instead of us. We move into the more violent of the seven deadly sins now with wrath. Wrath, in wrath, we actually desire the death of the rival. In other words, we are infuriated by our lack of success in, in competition with the rival, and therefore wrath is the anger and, and the actual wish of violence towards that other person. In envy, we desire to be the rival, not just have their possessions. This is really interesting inside of Girard's, where he says that um, 
If I desire my neighbor's big house, my neighbor's flashy car, even my neighbor's wife, do I actually desire those things or do I actually desire to be him? That's the real crux of mimetic desire where we not only desire the things that that person has, we desire to be that person, to take their place, to replace them in, in the whole scheme of things. You might remember if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, like I am, the scene at the beginning of the third Peter Jackson film, where Smeagol, who becomes Gollum, finds the ring of power, and he steals it from his cousin, who finds it first. He not only steals it, but he grabs the ring of power, and he kills his cousin in order to take the ring of power. Not just to get the ring of power, but to take his place as the ring bearer. And this is the true heart of envy, where we actually not only desire to take the things that the other person has, but to become that other person. And of course, to truly replace that other person, we have to get rid of them, which leads to um, ultimate violence. And at the heart of them all is the sin of pride. Pride is the desire, mimetic desire to be like our ultimate rival, which is God. And it's interesting, isn't it? And in the Garden of Eden, what was one of the temptations that the serpent gave to Eve? He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge and the, of good and evil, God knows that you will be like him. In other words, at the root of pride, at the root of disobedience, at the root of making our own choice, we are basically saying to God, no thanks, I'm going to take your place. You're not my master. I'm my master. I'm right. That's the root of pride and the root of all the rest of these. And it's my medic desire, this desire to be like the other and to take the place of the other, which is at the root of, the, of all of these seven deadly sins. Now, as we move forward here, I'd like to share with you something which has really helped me, and that is a study of Dante. And Dante structures the Inferno according to the seven deadly sins. And I'd like to share with you this map from Dorothy Sayers' version of the Dante's Inferno. And we can see here how Dante structures the architecture or the geography of hell. It's laid out like a great pit in the earth. And as you go down deeper and deeper into the pit, you go into the more serious uh, crimes. At the top levels of hell, where the punishment is lesser, the sins are considered to be less serious. As you go deeper down into hell, the sins become more and more um, serious and the punishment becomes more and more severe. So it's interesting to me that in the top level of hell, you can see after limbo, if you look closely, you can see that there's the circle of the lustful, the gluttonous, the hoarders and spendthrifts, which I will explain in a minute, are two different sides of greed, and then the wrathful. So right at the top of hell, considered to be the least serious of the sins, are the ones that we tend to think of as being most serious, the ones we're most ashamed of, the lustful the sins of the flesh, the sins of lust and gluttony, the ones where we lose control. And Dante would explain that all of these sins are a distortion of love. As I've just explained, mimetic desire distorts a good and a natural desire into something which is twisted and distorted and destroyed. And that's why it's a sin, because a sin is something which is good, which has been destroyed, something which is good, which has been um, distorted. And so in the top level, we have uh, lust, where it is uh, the natural desire for love, the natural desire for union, the natural desire for reconciliation between man and woman is distorted by um, 
uh, a lustful desire, the mimetic desire, as I've explained. The gluttonous are the next ones down, where the natural desire for food and drink and fellowship is distorted by an overweening desire for food and drink, either too much or too little. And Dante makes the point that being a great, huge overeater is in a way only one extreme. The other extreme is the person who is very abstemious and is very fussy about their food. And both of them have a, a distorted approach to food and drink. The alcoholic in that sense is an extremist, just like the teetotaler is an extremist. All things in balance in order to avoid these extremes. The hoarders and the spendthrifts are two, as, two different aspects of greed, both those who's, who grab everything they can as, as the hoarders and, and are greedy and grab as much as they can for themselves, therefore distorting the proper and natural love for good things, and also those who are extremely thrifty and mean and tight-fisted. Tightwads and greedy people are in the same circle because they are, again, exercising different extremes that are distorted by mimetic desire. As we go down further into hell, we come into the circle, the, the dimension of the violent. And here's where Dante puts the violent against nature, the violent against themselves, the suicides, and also the violence against God with heresy and violence against truth. Now, what interests me um, a lot is that you can see there's a, a, a big waterfall and a great cliff at this point, halfway down hell. And at that point, Dante and his guide, Vir Virgil, descend down into the deepest section of hell, and this is the section of the fraudulent, or the section of the liars. And there are 10 different um, little ditches in this section of hell, and you can see them listed there, panderers and seducers, flatterers, simoniacs, sorcerers, baritors, hypocrites, thieves, counselors of fraud, sowers of discord, and falsifiers. And in those 10 ditches, you find all of the people who I call the people of the lie. The people of the lie comes from a book by the psychologist, psychiatrist, Scott Peck. And he analyzed the people of the lie as those people who have given themselves over to the sin of the world. And they've given themselves over, not in the sins of the flesh at the upper levels of hell, of lust and gluttony and wrath and violence. They've given themselves over to the basic core sin which is the which is uh, deception and the lie following their desires but pretending that they're not and so here you will find the hypocrites and their their characteristics are that they're hypocrites they're lacking in empathy they're shapeshifters in other words they're constantly adapting and changing their appearance and changing their facade in order to please the, the people that they're with they're malignant narcissists in other words they're totally totally self-centered they're oppressors of, of the victims, and they will, they're tribal members. They will always form a tribe. They will always um, attach themselves to other people like themselves in order to create a kind of society for themselves. And these are the elitists, the ones who are exclusive and pushing other people out who aren't as good as they are. Now, the image that of a monster from hell is Dante's Gerion. He's a beast with enormous dragon-like wings with the paws of a lion, the body of a dragon, a wyvern, and a scorpion's poisonous sting at the tip of his tail. And the, the crunch here is that Dante says that the Gerion, who ushers them down into the circle of hell of the fraudulent, the liars, the people of the lie, says that he has the face of an honest man. Now, this is really telling because the Gerion 
is an absolute monster, an absolute demon from hell with all of these characteristics of a dragon, a lion, and a scorpion with a sting in the tail. And yet, Dante says very wisely, but he has the face of an honest man. And this, these are the people, what I call the people of the lie, the people who are hypocrites, the people who manufacture the false facade of goodness and maybe religiosity and respectability. But underneath it all is where they've, underneath it all in the labyrinth with the minotaur is where they buried the sin of the world. And these are the people who Dante places in the deepest section of hell because of their, their, their sheer hypocrisy. And because of their hypocrisy, the most terrible thing is they are the ones who believe the lie the most. They believe the lies that they're actually putting together. So we've rattled through a lot of content here pretty quickly, and I'm watching the time, and I would like to just take some a few moments now to explain how God actually intends to overcome the sin of the world, which manifests itself in the seven deadly sins, which we've gone through as well. In other words, this masterclass is not only considering the, the evil and the sin in the world, but what we can actually do about it. And so we'd like to go on now and talk for a few moments in the rest of the time about God's secret plan. What does he actually do to, actually, to take care of this problem? First of all is the realization that the people of the lie, the people who have indulged in this sin and put a happy face on it, put a, a, a sweet facade on the whole thing, they're invulnerable and irrational. What I mean by this is that the one sin which is unforgivable is the sin of self-righteousness because the self-righteous person doesn't think they have anything to con to confess. They don't have anything to be to anything that they're they're not sinful. They have nothing 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 to bring to confession. So, the people of the lie therefore are invulnerable and irrational. And this is where in my book Immortal Comeback, I really try to punch some truths home and say, look, if you're a religious person and I'm a religious person, this should really hold up a mirror to us because religious people are very good at this um, activity. Religious people very good at putting up the false facade, of putting up the religious facade and not being real and not being honest. We're very, in other words, ver we're very good at being hypocrites. Uh, and the worst thing about this is we don't know that we're doing it. We do it automatically and we're blind to the very the very problem. Therefore, it's almost impossible to get through to people who are people, the people of the lie. They have so many defenses, they have so many ways of avoiding the truth and denying the truth that it's very difficult to, to get through to them. And we see this in our Lord's ministry in the Gospels, where he and John the Baptist say to his enemies, you brood of vipers, you are you're you're the children of your father Satan, who was the father of lies. And they come right out and they attack them and straight on and say, you're, and you're trying to kill. And Jesus says, you're trying to kill me. And they say, our father is Abraham. He, you know, we, we, we're not like you where nobody knows who your father is. In other words, we're not an illegitimate bastard like you are, you know, we're the good people. And so we see this conflict in the gospels immediately where Jesus and John the Baptist can't actually get through to them. And every attack and every frontal attack only makes them throw up more defenses and makes them plot even more to bring down and to um, scapegoat uh, those who are attacking them. Therefore, God understands that this, the whole of humanity is trapped in this demonic dynamic. This whole of humanity is trapped in the behaviors we've been talking about. The whole of humanity is trapped in 
the mimetic desire, the whole of humanity is trapped in the scapegoating mechanism, the whole of humanity is trapped in blaming others, the whole of humanity is trapped in this cycle which goes on and on and on and on. And if you've been listening on Monday and this evening, you probably, like most people hear my talks, you're saying, yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I can see. We do this. We do this all the time. Society is doing it. Humanity is doing it. Human history has been doing it. That's all we do in many, many different ways. We defend ourselves. We say we're right. The other guy is wrong. It's their fault. And we begin to attack in order to get rid of that problem. We do it on international relations. We do it in families. We do it in schools. We do it in businesses. We do it in the military. We do it just every time human, human beings turn around with a problem. And the Lord understands that this demonic dynamic cannot be defeated with a head-on attack because if it's attacked head-on, all the defenses come up, all the denials come out, and we actually brush the, the direct attack away and say, no, that's not me. I'm not like that. Um, and so it never, the, the solution cannot be, can never be a direct attack. Instead, God's secret plan is this. And um, this is where I discuss... Uh, a particular plot line in in uh, stories in myth and in movies which is called the plot line of the secret son and i use luke skywalker as a good example but there's many many examples in in all sorts of stories and the secret son is this particular plot line which uh, story writers and authors find very difficult to resist because it's so powerful the secret son is this is the plot line of the young man or woman who's usually an orphan young man or woman who's uh, the little guy who's the underdog, who's maybe living out in the country in a nowhere town in a, and for Luke Skywalker, he's in the planet Tat Tatooine living with his aunt and uncle as an orphan and as a nobody. And that secret son is going to be the hero because there's a plan that's been laid out for that secret son. And the secret son's plan is to actually use his very smallness and his secretiveness to penetrate into behind the enemy territory and actually bring down the villains who are the big powerful ones. And Luke Skywalker does exactly this. He eventually penetrates into the evil network and destroys it from the inside out by dropping a bomb down on the inside of the Death Star. And the symbolism there is one of, of the storyline of the secret son, the little guy, the little girl who actually gets in inside the system of evil and defeats it from the inside out. God's secret plan, therefore, is this, the plan of his, his own son coming into the world in secret, not on the planet Tatooine, but in the town of Nazareth, in the town of Bethlehem, and being born to a humble family and seemingly without proper parentage and rising up to defeat Satan's dynamic, demonic dynamic from the inside out. And this particular plan or this particular way of working is actually one which I'm going to go on to show is one which um, continues to be the plan for defeating evil in the world today. The other aspect of this is the chapter in my book, which I call The Little Lady. And The Little Lady, of course, is a, re is a reference to the Blessed Mother. The Little Lady reminds us that redemption is, takes place on a small scale with a small event, a secret event, the crucifixion of Christ, and before that, the Annunciation to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But these small secret events are actually part of a cosmic war. And therefore, when the angel Gabriel comes to the Blessed Mother and announces the birth of God's Son and invites her to participate, we're seeing what I call the triumph of the humble. 
that God's way is secret and God's way is small and God's way is planting a little seed in the middle of the evil so that it will burgeon and will defeat it from the inside out. I use this title from that song, Thank Heaven for Little Girls, because quite often God's greatest secret agents are these little ladies who, uh, like the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Virgin Saints and other strong and powerful women, actually exercise their power through their littleness and through their smallness. It's all there in Mary's Magnificat, isn't it? He has put down the, hum- the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. This is the pattern of providence. This is the way God works in the world. Time and time again, through the lives of the saints, through the lives of the biblical heroes, he will choose that which is despised in the world in order to bring about his glory. He will use that which is small to to accomplish great things. He will use that which is secret to accomplish and broadcast the defeat of evil in the world. This is accomplished ultimately by our Lord's full final sacrifice. When Jesus comes to, when his ministry comes to a climax in those last chapters of the Gospels, where we witness his um, passion and we participate in the Paschal mystery, we actually see this whole plan coming to fruition. There is this boy from a humble family in Bethlehem in from Nazareth who becomes a country preacher and eventually challenges the establishment of the Jewish ruling classes which are in league with the Roman Empire. And he comes into the middle of that and challenges the whole system. And of course, functioning according to the sin of the world, he becomes scapegoated, he becomes blamed for what is going on. And they load up on him and he is therefore taken out. He's he's excluded, he's persecuted, he's tortured and he's killed. And within the Paschal mystery, we see this whole cycle actually being played out, um, but being defeated from the inside out. That's why we call Jesus Christ victim and victor. And this is why image of the cross being a great battle between God and Satan, if you like, a great battle between good and evil, is actually, for me, the most vital and the most interesting image or explanation of the atonement. You know, there's various other theories of the atonement, and all of them have merit, and all of them shed light on what happened on the mystery of the cross in some ways. But this one of the great battle taking place between good and evil, between God and the powers of of this world, is the one which uh, echoes and, and means the most to me, because we see Jesus Christ, therefore, coming in, following this plan that I've been explaining, and defeating the evil from the inside out as the scapegoat and as the victim. This is therefore why the cross is so important for Christians and why the cross must continue to remain important for Christians because the cross is where the battle was actually won. The cross is where the battle was actually taken up by God's son and actually evil was defeated by this action taking place within the very exercise of the evil. And why St. Paul, for instance, says, I am resolved to know nothing but the cross of but Christ and him crucified, and why he says, we preach Christ and him crucified, and why St. Paul says, for me to live and to die is Christ, to die is gain, and to say, I die daily. In other words, for St. Paul, the cross was this crux of the matter, and crux, of course, means cross. For him, the cross was everything. It was where the whole of human history was turned around, and explaining why it was turned around in these in this session explains why the cross is so vitally important and why uh, we can't neglect it and why for Catholics 
the general instruction of the Roman Missal says that our churches should be set up with a image of the crucified Lord clearly displayed for the veneration and the devotion of the faithful. In other words, a Catholic church that does not have a prominent image of the crucified Lord in place is not actually um, a proper Catholic church because the crucifix is central to our preaching. The crucifix is central to our life together. The, cru the crucifix and the crucifixion of the Lord is the turning point of the entire liturgical, liturgical year as we celebrate the Paschal Mystery. And it is, of course, the commemoration which takes place every time we celebrate Mass. It is a representation re of the cross of Christ there on every altar in the world, and why, therefore, the Mass and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the saving action that we proclaim it to be, because that drama that took place when our Lord was crucified is brought into the present moment and released into the world time and time again as we celebrate Mass and as we receive the body of Christ and, be, and try to live the cross in the world. On this final screen, I would like to discuss seven, ten words that begin with S, which help us to actually live the cross in our lives day by day. And this has really helped me and enlightened my life enormously because when I began to realize the importance of the cross yet again and why it's important and how it's important, it's really helped me to understand what my own battle against evil is like and what it consists of and what the tools are to be, the weapons are to be able to actually engage in this battle day by day. And some of these things might actually seem obvious, but what I would like us to do is to see how each of these 10 items, begin, words beginning with S, are actually participation in the cross of Christ. How each of these 10 things are not worth much on their own, but together and individually as they help us to participate in the cross of Christ, they actually help that cross to become alive in the world and, and vital in the world just as, as God intends it to be. So what is the key to the spiritual battle. The key to the spiritual battle is understanding where the battle was won on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his death, and how that can be applied in our lives day by day using these swords of the Spirit. So we're going to walk through these step by step. First is our participation in a sacramental faith. The church is the sacrament of Christ in the world, Christ's body in the world, and each of the sacraments in his own way is a participation in the cross. So, for instance, at baptism we say with St. Paul, we are baptized into his death and we rise in, in his resurrection, into his new life. So, baptism is being plunged into the death of Christ, being plunged into the cross. Confirmation is sealing that. The Eucharist is a, is a regular and daily and weekly participation in the cross of Christ. You might be familiar with the word anamnesis, which is used in Eucharistic theology. Anamnesis is a word which means it's a Greek word for a special kind of remembering. Uh, remembering not just as, a, as we might remember our vacation by looking at photographs from a good time we had, but anamnesis is a special kind of remembering in which corporately, in a ritualistic way, we bring a past event into the present moment. The Jews use this concept in their celebration of Passover. When they celebrate the Passover, they believe that they are participating in the first Passover thousands of years ago in Egypt. It's kind of like time travel. They're actually there and bringing that event into the present moment, wherever they are in the world, at whatever time they are in the world. 
The same thing can be applied to the Eucharist, where each Eucharist, each Mass, transportation back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and bringing the cross into the present moment in a, in a ritualistic, participatory way. So the Eucharist is therefore a sharing in the cross of Christ, a deep participation in the cross of Christ. And when the um, Church says that there should be full participation in the Mass, it doesn't mean that everybody has to have a job to do. What it means is that everybody must participate fully with their whole body, mind, and spirit in this anamnesis, this special kind of remembering that is taking place at the Mass. The other sacraments, the sacraments of service, of ordination, and marriage, of course, ordination is a way in which a man is reconfigured to Christ, the priest, both the priest and the victim, and so the priest, therefore, is participating in a special way in the cross of Christ. In marriage, we also participate in the cross of Christ. And I know some people say, yeah, it's a cross every day, Father. Well, <laughs> it, not necessarily. Offer it up, you know. But marriage uh, is a participation in the, in the love that Christ has for his church. When, when St. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives be subject to your husbands as the church is to Christ, Therefore, this beautiful relationship and sharing in the body of Christ is also a dimension of holy matrimony. Finally, of course, the two sacraments of reconciliation or healing, anointing and uh, confession, are the sacraments by which we participate again in the saving work of our Lord. Our Lord's death on the cross wins, wins for us the healing of our illness, the healing of our soul's sickness, and the forgiveness of our sins. And so confession and anointing the healing of the church is sharing in the work of our Lord on the cross and what that actually won for us. The next word that begins with S is sacred scripture. It's easy to neglect the reading of sacred scripture, but when we see that sacred scripture is actually a participation in the cross of Christ and in the Paschal mystery, it will, be, it will mean much more to us. Therefore, when we read the Old Testament, and we understand the pattern of providence in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system and with the different stories that have happened that prefigure the cross and prefigure the Lord's death and the Lord's life. All of this is a pointing forward to the Paschal mystery. And when we read the New Testament, which is a, a meditation or an explanation of the Paschal mystery, it's also a sharing in a deep way in our mind and in our heart with the uh, Paschal mystery and with the death of our Lord on the cross. So sacred scripture is something we should do every day. And if we see it as a, a sharing in the cross of Christ, it will mean much more to us. The work that we do for the church, the work that we do for um, the Lord needs to be small. This goes back to the idea of the little lady, that God's work in the world is always small. Remember the parable of the mustard seed, it's the tiny little mustard seed from which the great tree actually grows in which all the birds of the air will come and make their nest. God's work in the world always begins small. Secondly, it always begins secretly. The victory of the cross was a secret to start with. It was an insignificant event historically, and it didn't make the headlines. It was yet another crucifixion of yet another insurrectionist outside of Jerusalem by the Roman, by the Roman Empire. And so the cross the, and the true significance of what took place only comes clear much later. I remind people time and again when they want to do something great for God, they want to start a new apostolate, they want to write a book, they want to start a mission, they want to work with the poor, they want to become ordained, whatever it is, they want to do something great for God. And I like to remind people, remember, start small and start secret. 
Do what you can with what you have where you are and build it brick by brick and God will bless it. Don't imagine that you're going to have this great apostolate or this great ministry or something from, from the get-go. Start small and start secret. God always works in a humble way, and he will continue to, to do his work. And by doing that, we're actually participating in, in, in how he works in the world, and we're participating also in the cross of Christ, because that's what the cross was like. The next word is sacrifice. The sacrifice being linked with the small and secret is, again, the way that God works in the world. All of the little sacrifices matter. You know, St. Therese of Lisieux is one of my favorite saints, and her little way fits this perfectly, because her little way is to be little and to be secret and to be hidden in the world. And her little way was also a way of sacrifice. She would say, every day I tried to make little sacrifices, knowing that every little sacrifice that I could make would actually be a sharing in the cross of Christ. So sometimes those little sacrifices were just saying no to that extra piece of a bit of self-denial, or maybe it consisted of just making us giving a smile and a nod of forgiveness to one of the sisters that she didn't particularly like or didn't like her. And so St. Therese and the other saints teach us this small secret way of sacrifice, which step by step, day by day, really matters because this is sharing in the cross of Christ. The next word is simplicity. And simplicity is simply the mark of humility. Someone has said, G.K. Chesterton actually said, that there is more simplicity in a man who eats caviar because he wants to than a man who eats grape nuts on principle. Grape nuts being a cereal like raisin bran, I suppose. <laughs> and what he's trying to get across here is that simplicity is to be able to, the mark of simplicity is to be able to love and appreciate things for their own value, not for some other value which is distorted by mimetic desire. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a nice house in the suburbs for your family, a nice big house with a big yard. Maybe you have a pool. Maybe you have a lot of things which would some people would think would be luxuries. Now, if you love that home and that house because it's your home and because you have you use it for hospitality because you've raised a big family because you have a time of joyful happiness in that home. That's what a home is for. Therefore, that's, that is an example of simplicity. But if you have a big home because you're trying to show off and you're trying to live in a posh neighborhood and you're trying to be better than everybody else or keep up with the Joneses, that's not simplicity. Likewise, if you have a little home, which is humble, but you're dissatisfied there and you're constantly hoping for something bigger and better and fancier, that's not simplicity either. So simplicity is in the heart and simplicity is a mark of humility and simplicity is a mark of honesty. And the Lord's work in the world is always simple. It's secret, it's small, it's sacrificial, and it's simple. That means it starts small, it builds up step by step, and it values things for their true value, not for some distorted desire and distorted imitation of others. Hey, Father, this is John, real quick, three minutes until we yes. move to the Q&A, thanks. And, and we're, we're nearly finished. The last word is, the, the um, next word is to be steadfast. Stead, the battle goes to the one who perseveres. Great things are always accomplished by those who persevere, who just keep on going and don't give up. Finally, um, the ninth word is silence. Sorry, the eighth word is silence. I say don't complain and don't explain. In other words, the greatest saints uh, 
valued silence and not getting engaged in arguments and not getting engaged in disputations just for their own sake, certainly not getting engaged in disputations in order to prove oneself right and to prove somebody else wrong. There we go back to the motivation of pride. And this virtue of silence, of course, is a gift to us from the monastic tradition where this, uh, the Benedictine monks, and then of course the Cistercians and the Carthusians stressed silence and silence as the way to actually draw close to God and actually to avoid pride, because if we keep our mouths shut, we probably won't say anything foolish. <laughs> so silence is also a mark of God's work in the world. The ninth one is, this is we're beginning with S, is supernatural, to remember that we can't do anything on our own. It's only by a gift of grace, and that our religion really must be supernatural and trusting in the supernatural power of God in the world. There is a great trend in the world today to turn Christianity into what's called moral therapeutic deism. In other words, just a list of rules and regulations to be moral and respectable, therapeutic, a method to sort of become a better person and to work on your marriage and help to parent your troublesome teens and maybe to lose weight or overcome your addictions. And finally, deism, the idea that God is out there and he exists, but he doesn't really interfere in our lives. He doesn't really do anything here in this realm. And this false religion of moralistic therapeutic deism is just a killer. It, it's, it's a false religion, and, and there's, it's not even a religion at all. It's just a list of rules, a course of therapy with a vague spirituality. And our Catholic faith is always deeply rooted in, in a dependence on the supernatural, that God is alive, not only alive and out there, but he's in here and he's working in our lives and he answers prayer and he really does respond and give us the grace and the power to do what we need to do to serve him. The last one is suffering. And this is a reminder that as we do, the suffering will come to all of us sooner or later in one way or another, either through uh, illness, the loss of a loved one, death, bereavement, persecution, injustice, in so many different ways, suffering will come to us in one way or another. And when it does, we're called to participate in the cross of Christ and to see that as an identification with him and to join our lives with him. Thanks for tuning in to the second installment of Father Bright's course. We hope you enjoyed listening in and will join us next time when we release the third class on our role and how we are called to the battles of our day. Thank you and see you next time as we continue to discern our path to greatness in ordinary life.